Well, we're not going to uh, waste much time this morning getting into our text because I want to make sure that we can finish up everything today. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And this will be the last time that we camp out in verses 3 to 6. So I want to begin quickly by reading the text again together. So 1 John 2 verses 3 to 6. Follow with me as I read. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know, we may know, that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I've been trying to follow John's example, at least to some extent, over the last few weeks, because I have repeated over and over and over again the clear theme of these verses, which is that knowing Christ results in obeying Christ, or that it's connected to obeying Christ. And we're going to see, as we continue to study through the rest of this letter, that this idea really is the main point of John's writing. He wants his readers or his listeners to have it cemented in their minds that to know Christ is to obey Christ, that those who know Christ are those who obey Christ. And so we've been taking our time at this place in the letter to unpack just for a little bit what John means when he is talking about knowing Christ and what he means when he's talking about obeying Christ. And I hope that we all recognize the supreme importance of having a clear understanding of these two ideas in our minds. It's entirely possible for any of us, for anyone, to think that they know Christ when they really don't. And it's entirely possible for any of us to think that we obey Christ when we really don't. Here is what Jesus himself says about these issues. This is in the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Christ himself preaches this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And notice there that the Lord indicates that there are those, actually many, who think they know Him. They call Him Lord, Master, as if they have this personal acquaintance with them. But He says to them later that He never knew them. That knowledge of Christ never existed. And then Jesus also says that these same ones even thought that they obeyed Him. They recounted the many things that they had done in his name. 
And Jesus says that he will one day reveal to them that they were actually doing works of lawlessness and not righteous deeds of obedience. So they are seriously misunderstanding the nature of knowing Christ and the nature of obeying Christ. And Jesus says, how many persons in the course of human history are going to be in that category? Many, many will misunderstand what it is to know and will misunderstand what it is to obey Christ. And may we not be in that boat. May we be those who truly understand the nature of knowing and obeying Christ. And the certain fate of those people is sobering. Even if they sincerely thought that they knew Christ, even if they sincerely thought that they obeyed him, That sincerity counts for nothing because Jesus indicates that the fate of those ones is that they will be punished in all eternity for their sins. Just as Jesus clarifies in Matthew 25 and verse 41 when he preaches that one day he will say to this category of people, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So having a wrong definition of knowing and obeying Christ has eternal consequences. So that's why we're camping out here for a long time. We need to be clear. And so I hope that we all realize that we must think clearly about true knowledge of Christ and about true obedience to Christ. We've already considered what these verses in 1 John chapter 2 tell us about knowing Christ. And last week we began considering what they tell us about obeying Christ. If you remember, we considered just one word in verse 3 last time that reveals a significant concept about true obedience to Christ. In verse 3, we read John say this, And by him we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And the important word there that I went over last time is the word keep. And hopefully I made a compelling argument for how this word is used in the New Testament, that keeping has the idea of guarding or treasuring or protecting something of great value. And it's more than just outwardly conforming to a set of rules To keep commandments is a deeper thing than merely meeting all the external requirements. To keep commandments is a deeper thing than even even verbally speaking well of something. Something that you would do well with your mouth. But rather, to keep commandments is to have at, at the root a heartfelt affection for both God himself and the rules or commandments that he gives. To keep commandments is to hold them in the highest regard, to put a value on them higher than anything else. And to keep commandments is to believe that there is nothing in life more important for you to follow than these instructions. And then the Old Testament examples that we covered last week indicate that this is not merely a New Testament principle, not at all. God's people have always been obligated to obey in this manner. 
We read from Deuteronomy 10, we considered it last week, where God's people are told that their obedience to him was to involve three major components. They were to fear him, they were to walk with him, and they were to love him. And only in that way would they truly be obeying him. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, an important verse. We read this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And you might remember that we looked at Noah as the example of walking with God and at Job as the example of fearing God, and then at the nation of Israel as the example of what it was supposed to look like to love God. And let me just run over them briefly in review as we get ready to go into the next uh, points for what it looks like to obey God. Uh, Imagine, first of all, the, the culture of Noah's day. Just imagine what it would have been like. Genesis 6 and verse 5 tells us that the inner thoughts of the hearts of every person on earth in Noah's day was only evil continually. But Noah was different. And this would have not gone unnoticed by the world around him, likely. It's likely that Noah did not have many friends. And more than that, the pressure to live wickedly by all those around him would have been very strong. And so the only way that Noah would have been able to truly obey God in the midst of that kind of a society is if he walked not with the world, but with God instead. Because if he walked with the world, he would have been easily carried away in the current of their wickedness. Remember Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then we read a few verses later that his delight rather is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The opposite of walking with the wicked is delighting in the law of God. And so it would also be true that walking with God is the same thing as delighting in his law. So we can't keep the law if we don't walk with God as opposed to walking with the world. This was surely true of Noah, who walked with God. And then we saw that Job feared God. How else can you explain his response to such great adversity? How else could Job say at the end of all the calamity that fell upon him, remember his response, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. If you realize that all that you have is from God and that this God is one to be feared, then you do not worry and you do not quarrel with what he gives, with what he withholds, and with what he takes away. You fear him. He's your master. He's your boss. And it doesn't bother you because you know he's a good master. And so when God gives his commandments to us, those who fear him are those who keep them. And then when we read of God commanding his special nation Israel to love him above all else in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see that in the same breath they were to evidence that love 
by what their posture to his law was supposed to be. He said to them in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So you're supposed to love me and love my words. And then he says, this is how you will show it. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice how hard they were to work at remembering the law. They were to diligently teach these rules to their kids. They were to talk about the rules of God when they sat around at home. They were to talk about them when they walked here or walked there. They were to think about them when they went to bed. They were to think about them when they rose up in the morning. They were to write them on pieces of paper and dangle them in front of their eyes. And then they were to write them inscribed in the wood and clay of their houses. His commandments were to be all over the place in front of them. The point is that they were to do everything in their power to never forget his law. They were to do everything that they could do to remember his commandments 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Or how many days are in the Jewish calendar year? I don't know. That is what it means to keep God's commandments. It means that you never forget his rules. It means that you never fail to stop thinking about what he wants for you to do and what he wants for you to not do. And you're to do this because you love him. Isn't that what we're supposed to do for those we love on earth? Aren't we supposed to remember all the things that our spouse loves? The things that delight them? Because we love them? Aren't we supposed to remember all the things that make our children happy? Because we love them. And don't we evidence this principle in that we know all the stats of our favorite ball club or football team or whatever it is that we love on earth? We remember the things that we love. We remember the things about people we love. And so if we love God supremely, doesn't it follow that we should remember his rules? And so it is that if we love God, we will keep his commandments. And all of that was to make the first point concerning what it means to obey Christ from what John wrote in, those, in, in these verses. The first thing we remember about obeying Christ is that such an obedience begins in the heart. Obedience to Christ begins in the heart. That's the first principle. And in other words, just to summarize, merely external Compliance, mere external compliance is not true obedience. Dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, looking the way we're supposed to look, saying the things we're supposed to say, getting by with just the letter of the law, making sure you do just enough of the right thing in front of others, that's not true obedience. The point is that you cannot say that you obey Christ until you can say that you keep his commandments. Until you can say that you obey by walking with him, by fearing him, and by loving him. Only then can you say that you obey him. 
But not only do we find that obedience to Christ begins in the heart, that's the first point, but we also learn from verse 4 of 1 John chapter 2 that obedience to Christ, secondly, is the only evidence that we know Him. Number two, you see it there in the bulletin, obedience to Christ is the only evidence that we know Him. In verse 4 we read this, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And that's clearly a negative statement that those who do not keep commandments are lying if they also claim to know Christ. But we can also express that in the positive if we just flip things around. We can say that the opposite is true, that those who do keep his commandments are what? If you don't keep his commandments, but you say you know him, you're a liar. But if you do keep his commandments and you say you know him, that means you're telling the truth. Those who do keep his commandments are rightly, authentically able to claim that they know Christ. And I hope that the point is clear. That obedience to Jesus gives credible evidence to the claim that you know him. You can't substantiate that claim any other way. And it's not merely that this is one of the ways to evidence the fact that we know Christ. We have to see that this really is the only way that we can evidence the fact that we know Christ. There is no other thing in Scripture to be found that provides this kind of evidence. Our experiences do not give evidence to our knowledge of Christ. Our emotions do not give solid evidence to our knowledge of Christ. Even our knowledge of the Bible and of doctrine do not give certain evidence to our knowledge of Christ. And then even our words, what we confess, they're not certain evidence to our knowledge of Christ. It's only our habitual, from-the-heart obedience that evidences the fact that we know Christ. And I'm not just making that up out of thin air. Consider what James says in James 2, verses 18 to 24. He writes, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well, but even the demons believe, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And this teaching is indicating the kind of faith that is supposed to be in operation in the heart of the true believer. There's a kind of faith that is not justified. This is to say that without certain evidence, there is no just basis to claim to have true faith. And James says that merely having an intellectual knowledge of God, it's not enough to verify true faith. Because even the demons believe. They have a knowledge. 
It's only when we have a kind of faith like Abraham had, a kind of faith which resulted in obedience to God's commands, only that kind of faith gives evidence that it is genuine. And it's the same thing concerning our claim to know Christ. Many, per, many people in the world claim to know Christ with, their, with what they say. Many say that they've experienced something that seems to be churchy or Jesus-y, and it gives them reason to think that they know him. Many say that since they believe in Jesus, that certainly they have a relationship with him. But in reality, the only way that we can have an authentic claim to know him is if we indeed obey him. That's the only way. So we've seen that obeying Christ begins in the heart, and we've seen now that obeying Christ is actually the only true evidence that we know him. But those two points are somewhat subjective, really. They don't really tell us about what obedience looks like. They don't really give us something tangible and concrete that I can see. It's good to know that we must obey from the heart, but how can we truly tell? If I'm evaluating myself, how can I know for sure if my obedience is truly from the heart as it ought to be? And it's great to have confidence that we evidence true knowledge of Christ, but we don't want to put overconfidence in what we see in ourselves. I don't want my assurance to anchor just on my own self-evaluation. And so the next two aspects to obeying Christ are more practical and more tangible. The next two ways that we can ensure that we truly obey Christ have very practical outworkings for all of us to consider. And they give us concrete things to do so that we might be certain that we truly obey Christ. And so if you're following along in the notes, the third thing that we find in 1 John chapter 2 concerning what it means to obey Christ is found there in verse 5. So look with me at verse 5. And simply it is this, that to obey Christ is to obey the Bible. Number three, obedience to Christ is obedience to the Bible. Look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now here John is bouncing back to a positive statement after making a negative one in verse 4. And he contrasts the liar who doesn't obey with the one who, as he writes in verse 5, keeps his word. In verse 3, John uses the word keeping commandments. And here in verse 5, he's talking about keeping his word. And there's a significance to the difference of words here. We have to realize that the only way to keep commandments is by keeping his word. Or to put it another way, it's not possible to keep his commandments if we do not keep his word. And the reason why these two things are connected is hopefully obvious to you, but it's something that we might not connect in our minds as often as we should. You see, the commandments of Christ do not come to us from our experiences in life. His commands do not come from our subjective impressions. His commands don't come to us in dreams and visions. 
His commands don't come to us by urgings or promptings that we have in our hearts. His commands don't come to us from our friends or even from our parents or from our pastor. Jesus has ordained that his commandments be distributed solely from his word. That's the only source from which we get his commandments. And so to keep his commandments requires us to keep his word. Essentially, that we, we could say that his word is his commandment to us. There's simply no way to disconnect the one from the other. And perhaps one of the best places in Scripture for us to see that connection made clear is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So if you would, please turn with me there to Matthew 5. I want to have you see here that Jesus himself makes the connection between commandments and Scripture. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we find Jesus ascending up a mountain, much like Moses would have done when he went to give the law of God to the people of God. And then we find Jesus at the beginning of chapter 5 sitting down the way a respected teacher would so that he could give his instructions to his disciples as a, as a rabbi would do. And then after the Beatitudes in verses 2 to 12 and the salt and light passage in 13 to 16, we hear him give instructions concerning the nature of Scripture and commandments. He's connecting Scripture and commandments. So look at Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a lot in these verses that we could take a few weeks really to unpack. But for the point that I want to, to draw your attention to this morning is how Jesus indicates to be his view of the scriptures. There in verse 17, when he says the law or the prophets... And then in verse, seven, verse 18, when he simply says the law, I believe he's referring to the entire Old Testament scriptures that they had at this point. So law and prophets, or just the law, he's talking about the Bible, or at least the Bible that they had at the time. And what he says is that he came not to do away with it. He didn't come to get rid of the Bible. He said he came to fulfill it. This is an interesting word, fulfill, and maybe one day we'll dig into how Matthew uses it because he uses this word in a unique way. Uh, but what the word means, I believe, is that he came to, to bring full clarity to the Scriptures. He came to fill it up. Like if my cup was half full and then I fill it up all the way, 
It's as if the Old Testament was only partially understandable to the people before Jesus came. But with Christ, now he brings it up to its full understanding. This is the idea of mysteries that are now made clear. We see that throughout the New Testament. He came to make Scripture fully understandable. He came to make the commands truly clear. He came to make it so that we could comprehend in a complete and in a satisfying sense what it is that God is accomplishing in the world through Christ. And Jesus did this very thing through his teachings in the Gospels. He did this through his work in the cross, on the cross. And he did it by commissioning his apostles to write down the New Testament for us. So, in Matthew 5, after telling us that one of his purposes for coming to earth was to firmly establish the importance of the word. I'm not coming to get rid of it. I'm coming to make it all the more clear for you. So Jesus is affirming the importance of Scripture. He made that clear in verses 17 and 18. And then he made it really clear how important it, was, it would be for his people to follow the commandments that are in that word. Look at the next verses. If you are one of his people, and if you find the commandments in his word to be not very important, what does he say will be true of you? You'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you're one of his people and you look in the scripture and you see his commandments and you keep them and teach others to keep them, you consider them, you regard them very important, then Jesus says that you will be considered great. In other words, the higher we view the commandments of his scriptures, the higher we are going to be exalted in his kingdom. And conversely, the lower we view the commandments of his scriptures, the lower we will be placed in his kingdom. So we have it on good authority, Jesus' authority, that his word is of utmost importance because what is it that is found in his word? The commandments that we are to value highly. So if we don't value his word, it means we don't value the commandments that are in the word. So how can we be great in his kingdom? The point is really clear. If we're going to value his commandments highly, we have to value the scriptures which contain them highly. Those who obey him are those who obey his word. We obey the Bible. And this really shouldn't be foreign to us at all. I think it's an innate thing in those who are born of God to love the Bible and want to follow it. This is really what it means to be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's 1 Peter 1.23. And what he means there is that the seed that gives rise to life in our hearts like a corn kernel or a plant seed that you put in the ground, the seed itself is Scripture. And out of Scripture births life in our hearts. So it only makes sense that we would want to obey that which gave us life in the first place. So this is really a natural thing for Christians to do. And perhaps there's no better description of what it is like to have this inclination to obey the Word than what we read in the great chapter of Psalm 119 that we've been using for our calls to worship every morning. 
Let me read for you just a few excerpts from this beautiful expression of what it means to have your heart fully set on obeying God by obeying his word. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Verse 62, at midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. When was the last time we did that? You're so consumed with the rules of God found in his word that you wake up from your sleep to praise him. I don't think we do this very often. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. When we are afflicted by the circumstances of life, do we say that's good because it drives me to the word? That ought to be our response. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Remember, seven in the Bible is often a representation of of the idea of completion, meaning all day. All day I praise you for your righteous rules. Verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. And then in the New Testament, not just in the words of Christ that we looked at in Matthew 5, but also in the epistles, we find this great theme of how those who want to obey Christ will obey his word. Just to give one more example, let me read from what Paul gave as the most solemn command that he ever gave in all the scriptures, at the end of his life, he commanded Timothy in a very sobering way. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, so he's charging him by all those things, Here's the charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And basically all of those things are just the, the fallout of the command to preach the word. If Timothy was to do anything, he was to make sure he preached the word. Of all things that a minister of the gospel could and should do, and there are a lot of good things that a minister should do, none of his tasks are more important than the preaching of the Bible to God's people. And why is that the case? Well, it's because Scripture must be obeyed in order for Christ to be obeyed. We don't obey Christ 
apart from obeying his word. So obeying Christ, first of all, begins in the heart. Secondly, obeying Christ is the only true evidence that we know him. Number three, obeying Christ is obeying the Bible. Now lastly, we see back in verse 6 of 1 John 2, that obeying Christ, simply put, is living like Christ. Obedience to Christ is living like Christ. Look at verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And our clear principle about obeying Christ is what John says here at the end, that we ought to walk in the same way that he walked. The idea of walking here is the same thing that we considered in chapter 1 about walking in the light, about living your life habitually in the light. It's talking about a manner of living. A walk is how you live. It's your normal pattern of life. And John says that obedience to Christ is captured in the idea of living in the same kind of way as Jesus lived, of walking in the exact same way that Jesus walked, of living your life out in the same way that Jesus would have lived his life. It's also not surprising that in verse 6, at the beginning of the verse, John brings to light here, The idea of abiding to Christ in connection with walking the way he walked. Because if you plant a grapevine in your garden, then you expect all the branches to do the same thing that the vine does. If the vine produces grapes, then what are the the branches going to produce? Grapes. If you take a chemical analysis of the vine, it's going to be equal to a chemical analysis of the branches. Think about a house's water system. If you have a main hot water pipe, what flows through it? Hot water. All the pipes that branch from it are going to contain, supposed to at least, hot water. So the, everything connected to the source is just like the source. So if we are abiding in Christ, if we're connected to Christ, if we remain in Him then it follows that our life will look exactly like our source of life. Our obedience must be identical to his obedience. Or to put it a little more more, uh, thought-provokingly, our concept of what obedience is, how we think about obedience, has to be exactly the same as how Jesus thought of obedience. The way Jesus defines obedience is how we are to define obedience, is maybe the more powerful way to think about it. How we think about obedience beginning in the heart must be exactly what Jesus thinks about obedience beginning in the heart. And the way in which we view our obedience as evidence of the fact that we know him, it must be exactly the same way that he thinks about obedience evidencing the fact that we know him. And the way in which we value his word as the only means by which we can obey him, well, it has to be the same way that he values his word as the only way that we can obey him. Jesus, essentially, defines what obedience is. And Jesus himself also defines what obedience isn't. 
Jesus not only defines what obedience is by revealing it to us clearly in Scripture, but here's a gracious and merciful thing for us all. Jesus also defines true obedience by modeling it for us in his life. So he doesn't just teach it, he also lives it. He doesn't just say, do as I say, he says, do as I do. He patterned it for us as well. And what grace is that to us? Not only do we have a clear and powerful word to tell us what the way of obedience is, we also have a compelling and loving Christ to show us what the way of obedience is. At every turn in life, we not only have an authoritative scripture that tells us what Jesus expects us to do, but we also have an exemplary Savior who shows us what He Himself did so that we can follow Him. From both angles, we have such a grace. We see it clearly in Scripture. We see it clearly in the life of our Lord. And so at this point, in closing, we should take just a few minutes and consider this question of how did Jesus walk? What was his walk? What was his life like? What was the manner of his life? And only by answering that question can we know fully what it means to obey him. Because obedience to him is living like him. And we can answer that question theologically. We could answer it practically. We could answer that question with lots of situations and examples. We could do the WWJD thing. What would Jesus do? But I think the most helpful thing that I could do right now in the few moments that we have left is to let the words of Scripture illumine our minds as to how it was that Jesus lived. And in hearing the words of Scripture, we will hear our pattern for living, our pattern for obedience. So listen with me as I walk through just a few texts that illustrate how Jesus lived. I'll begin in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus' family didn't realize that he stayed behind in Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. We read, beginning in verse 46, After three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, son why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that was spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And then Matthew 9.35, we read a summary of what Jesus' ministry in Galilee was like. This is how Jesus lived in Galilee. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then in order to sustain this ministry, we read in many places how he prepared himself every day, such as in Mark 1 and verse 35, 
rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus was so much dependent on his father for his ministry that we read these words from him in John chapter 5. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Twice in Jesus' ministry, we read that he was so overcome with zeal for the misuse of the temple that he cleared out all the shenanigans from it. Like Matthew 21.12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then Mark gives us a glorious summary of Jesus' reason for coming to earth in the first place. He said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There in the Gospels, we get a good sense of what Jesus' life was like. It was a life of being about his Father's business, submission, prayer, zeal, compassion, service. And then we move into the epistles. We gain even more insight into how Jesus lived. Philippians 2.8, Paul sheds clarity on what his death on the cross really was. It was an act of pure obedience. Paul writes, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Everything in Jesus' life was about obeying the Father. And then Peter sheds poignant clarity on how Christ's life is a pattern for us, 1 Peter 2.21, we read this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten threatened, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's the pattern that we're to follow. His example of how to suffer physical anguish and wrongful treatment by men is not the only way that he exemplifies enduring difficulty in life. Because in Hebrews 4.15, we read that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he lived his life enduring physical suffering, and he lived his life enduring spiritual temptation at every point. And then we'll finish with this great summarizing example of how to walk like Christ walked from the very beginning of Hebrews 12. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, and here's how Jesus lived, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In our pursuit to obey Christ, we grow weary and faint-hearted often, don't we? The remedy is to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Christ walked in that way, and so we are to follow. We are to walk as he walked. So, may we thus obey Christ. May we obey him from the heart. May we obey him as the only evidence of the fact that we know him. May we obey him by obeying his word. And may we obey him by living the way that he lived. Father, this type of obedience, we must confess, is not easy or simple. It is one that requires discipline. It's one that requires study, devotion, prayer, the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And at the very foundation, it requires a new heart. So, Father, I pray that if there's one here today who evaluates their lives and realizes that they aren't even close to this type of obedience because it's a kind of obedience that's absolutely foreign to them. May they maybe come to see that it's foreign to them because they have yet to come to Christ in the first place to be given a new heart. They've not been born of the seed of the word of God and they cannot obey this way. May they turn from their sin and seeking their own way to you May they turn from that into seeking Christ alone as the only way to you. May they come to him for forgiveness and for cleansing. And for those of us who do know him, may we come to Christ for encouragement and for grace. May we come to him for an example. May we come to him for strength and power. May we come to him as the pattern that we must follow. We thank you that we have a Savior who not only gives us the instructions of what to do and how to obey in his word so clearly, and that's a grace, but he also has lived it for us. He's lived it as a pattern, as an example. He's suffered all that we would suffer. He's endured temptation in every regard that we must endure and all the time without sin. So may we follow in his steps so that we might obey him. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.